Thanks, Megan. We begin our series on love, sex, marriage or not. And tonight the focus is on sex. And one problem is that sex is everywhere. On the TV, the internet, sex, sexuality, sexual identity, continual topic of conversation uh, from politics through to entertainment. You can't get away from it. And the world's changed so much uh, that bestseller Fifty Shades of Grey celebrated bondage and sadomasochism, something considered perverted 40 years ago. In my lifetime, homosexuality has moved from rare and immoral to mainstream and modern family popular. Uh, They say, the stats vary, but up to 90% of teenagers today have had some exposure to pornography. Uh, Issues like sexting didn't even exist when I was a kid. Well, that's because mobile phones didn't exist, but sex is everywhere. And yet, as I was preparing, it struck me we spend far more time working or studying, don't we? Far more time eating, consuming social media and TV. And I looked up the studies and the answer is yes, actually. The average Westerner's lifespan is now about 80 years. And stats, I double-checked, say that of those 80 years, the average person spends about 26 26 years sleeping. That's all right. Uh, 12 of them working, 8 or 9 of them watching TV, 3 to 5 on social media. That one's rising fast. Uh, We spend three to four years of our life eating, that's 60 to 80 minutes a day, and sex, on average, the surveys say it just lasts 19 minutes, and having sex takes just 50 to 120 days of your entire 80 years. That's less than 0.5 or 1% of your lifetime. Well, there's a bit of perspective, maybe. Uh, But it dominates attention. They say there's quantity time and there's quality time and we realise there's more to the power and significance of sex than counting the seconds or the years. I, I just feel this pressure to be aware of every trend, every bit of information but it's not possible to read all the books on sex and marriage and relationships and it's not even that interesting. Instead what we're doing, very ordinary in one sense, Trusting the Bible, just working through half of 1 Corinthians 6 and all of 7 to see what God has to say to us through this part of his word. And the first thing was something I wasn't expecting. Sex and the resurrection. I don't think I've ever noticed this connection in all my years of Bible reading before. Sex and the resurrection. Look at the second half of verses 13 and then 14. Uh, the body however is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body by his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us also it's a surprise to me because if you think about the resurrection in connection with sex and relationships and you've been a Bible reader, you'll probably think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, quote, at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they'll be like the angels in heaven. No more death in heaven, is there? No more need for making more babies. No more sex or marriage in heaven, Jesus says. 
no more pairing off because we'll be seeing Jesus face to face and that will be the ultimate relationship, the ultimate intimacy. But look here at verse 14. God will raise his people by exactly the same power he raised Jesus from the dead. We say we believe in the resurrection. Well, that means the body belongs to him. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, he's taking on common views of his day about freedoms and rights. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be bastard by anything. I guess you've heard that saying, if you hung around church, not under law, but under grace. And it comes twice from Romans chapter 6, in fact. By trusting Christ and his death on the cross, we say we're freed from the law's condemnation of our sins. And it seems some Corinthian Christians thought being saved by grace meant uh, free from any law. Forgiveness is already taken care of, so they had the right to do whatever. And such views lined up nicely with uh, Greek philosophers, what they prized back then, autonomy, self-sufficiency. And freedom's celebrated just as much today, isn't it? Uh, a key driver of ethics, of personal philosophy, my right to decide for myself, to do as I please, whatever fulfills me, whatever floats my boat. Freedom and rights. And it combined with the idea that the body was just temporary, verse 13, the start this time, you say, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. We'd say today, body, just a bunch of molecules of carbon and calcium and so on, a bunch of chemical reactions, it's all going to turn to dust or get burned up and people say, hey, the body's temporary, it doesn't matter much what you do with it, party on. A division between body and soul is a pretty common view in the ancient Greek world. And so if you somehow took care of your higher spiritual needs, you could pretty much do what you like with your body down below. Sex, well that's just a another lower earthly natural process like eating has no lasting meaning no moral consequences lots of people think that way today don't they sleeping around a bit of porn experimenting while you're young and well, no worries it's, it's only temporary uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get rid of your body it can't be too bad no 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 Paul says your body matters to God End of verse 13, remember? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, it's meant for the Lord Jesus. The body, your body, you live your life in, is meant for fellowship with the Lord. It's meant for his service. And verse 14 says, we know God will raise you like he raised Jesus. Jesus wasn't a ghost when he came back from the grave. And the gospel showed he was fully able to eat a fish burrito for a beach breakfast with his disciples. Our whole resurrection is the resurrection of the body. Uh, we say it in the creeds, one, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, there's a whole chapter taken up to sort of show this and its implications. Just like Jesus had a real body when he was raised from the dead, we believe in the resurrection of the body. It'll be radically spiritually transformed, but it's continuous with who you are right now. That's why your body right now matters to God. It's actually with you for eternity.
If you trust Christ, you will be with him for eternity. And we'll come back to that a little more. But right now, I want to say the resurrection of the crucified Christ means sexual sin can be forgiven. For this we go back prior to this section to verses 9 and 11. These uh, verses, uh, a doorway from the previous section, uh, that dealt with very particular sins including incest. But then verses 9 and 10 generalise. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God's eyes, all sin is serious. Sin cuts you off from the kingdom of God. No inheritance. And that includes the different kinds of sexual sin. Adultery is mentioned there, sex outside of marriage where one of the sexual partners is already married to someone else. Uh, Homosexual activity and then there's this general term sexual immorality. Our English word pornography comes from this word but it covered quite a range of sexual sins in the ancient world. But there's other sins here too aren't there? Sins of greed, wanting too much, too much booze, too much money to take other people's property or reputations or their false gods idolatry and this tells you that sexual sin in general and have to say homosexuality in particular is no worse than any other sin that polite christians sometimes excuse and consider less serious a greedy materialism getting drunk it rates as badly here as adultery telling lies devouring gossip bad as porn any sin left to itself will cut you off from God in verse 11 that's what some of you were but it's past tense thankfully there's a but in fact three times actually literally verse 11 says but you are washed but you are sanctified but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God and it's not good grammar but the repetition of but emphasises the escape, the change, the fresh start. What Jesus did on the cross and what his spirit applies to the life of the believer has cleaned you up, washed. It's separated you from your old godless lifestyle and made you suitable for God's presence, sanctified. And it's declared you innocent of guilt and put you in the right before God, justified. Christ's past action on the cross secures your present life now against the future judgment of God. He's saying all sin can be forgiven no matter how serious. It wasn't the Gong Wednesday uh, two Saturdays back, such a good day. We heard from Dave Jensen, uh, the black sheep of the archbishop's, former archbishop's family, uh, who had, had everything pretty much, uh, loving parents and a very privileged education and yet as a young man he was getting drunk and aggro and sleeping around. His mum and dad said they worried about the police coming knocking on the door and 
got a girl pregnant and married her but the relationship was trashed and the marriage didn't last and more sleeping around including abortions as a consequence he said and finally he went to the computer his twin sister had handed down to him to view some porn and instead he found their sermons she'd left on there by guys like John Piper and he gave his life to Christ and Dave Jensen was cleaned and changed and forgiven and that could be your story too. Uh, you ought to let a friend know. You ought to let me know after church if you need to make that your story. But as a Christian, your life will never be the same again. And that takes us to the second big point about sex from this passage, what I've called sex and union. Sex is all about union, uniting you to another. In other words, and well, at least hopefully you'll remember it, uh, sex is glue. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it's said that two will become one flesh? Now, the key information point of the whole sermon perhaps, well the Gospels, I just said, is the key, but in terms of the theology of sex, this is the key thing to grasp. Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24. That's where the first man, Adam, meets the first woman, Eve. Uh, God created her from him and for him, male and female. And Genesis 2.24 says their relationships will be the pattern for all marriages, quote, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. The one flesh relationship is a reference to intercourse to sexual union and this word for unite was sometimes used for glue you know gluing the broken handle back onto a coffee mug um, or for welding bits of metal together it's saying that sex cements a relationship Sex is God's chemistry to bond two people together in the closest possible human intimacy, body, mind and soul. And that's why sex is intended for a permanent relationship because sex is supergluing you together. Now, I'm, I resisted the temptation just to sort of... I could have just preached a sermon reading Patricia's book or something. But I noticed that sex therapist, doctor... Uh, University of Sydney academic, uh, quote, sexual intimacy results in a hormone-driven brain-level attachment. Science has just discovered exactly what the Bible says. And that's why casual sex is not casual. Casual sex is never casual. Yeah, sex and money always damages, generally it's the woman being exploited as a prostitute. Uh, tabloid news outlets are stupid, aren't they? They sometimes publish those stories of women allegedly happily paying their university fees or something by selling themselves. Hides the reality that suicide rates among prostitutes are far higher than for ordinary women. Tells you something. It feeds the modern international slave trade, exploiting third world women and girls. I'll add a word about pornography here. You may be alone when you use it. But the people you view are being exploited. Correction, 
you are exploiting them. You create the demand that gets them used. And Patricia again, it rewires your brain to ruin personal intimacy, not to mention the damage you do to a current or future wife or husband. But almost the biggest issue here is that you are leaving bits of yourself behind in every person you have sex with and then move on from. The bond is made. Uh, Patricia actually said there's even some research that boys doing their thing alone with pornography bond with the actress or the person they're viewing. The bond is made and then the bond is broken and like trying to separate two bits of flesh stuck together by superglue, the bond cannot be broken without some damage. Did you notice that I said breaking the bond of sex is almost the biggest issue here? It's because there's something even bigger for the Christian. It's a prior relationship. If you're a Christian, you have a prior relationship which ought to trump casual sex. I'm not talking about your current or possible future husband or wife. Uh, We'll talk more about marriage next week. But now I'm talking about Christ. That's the prior relationship. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. We see this word member, we sort of think, oh, club member. You know, it's voluntary, you choose it. Um, The strength of the commitment, the link depends on the benefits you get. No, no, we're talking about body parts, body members. When you say you're members of Christ, you're saying we're his limbs and organs. As a Christian, you have an organic connection to Jesus. You're like an arm or a leg on his body. Uh, the image, you, you know it, don't you? It comes again in chapter 12. That's much better known there. We have all different gifts in the body of Christ. Every body part has a job in the human body. But here it's saying a Christian linking with a prostitute, it'd be sort of like amputating an arm from the body of Christ. You, you can't claim to have been redeemed by Jesus and, and snatch back for ungodly purposes the limbs that have been grafted into his body. Verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. When you become a Christian, there is a spiritual union with Christ. Now, in Ephesians 5 and verse 32, one of the other famous marriage passages, Paul applies this image of two becoming one flesh to Christ and the church. He's saying that's the ultimate spiritual marriage. Uh, Back here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, it speaks of a Christian person's aim being, quote, to please the Lord in body and spirit. And then it kind of parallels that commitment to what you'd expect of a wife for a husband. If you're married, you're doing both of those things. Now, in their commentary here, uh, Brian Rosner and Roy Champer write, quite literally, at the heart of Paul's world stands Christ the risen Lord, for whom all believers live and in whom they find their purpose and identity. The conclusion of this passage is that you're not your own. 
verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know that your temples, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. Uh, I mean, generally, we don't know much about it, but we hear, we read in the Bible of demon possession, that awful situation when an evil spirit so controls a person that it's actually taken up residence inside that person's life, twisting them. No longer external, but internal influence. Friends, when we come to Jesus, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. We have Holy Spirit possession. And it means we're not our own. This probably helps explain that idea that all other sins are outside the body. We ask, well, what about drunkenness or gluttony or self-harm? Doesn't that harm your own body? Not necessarily anyone else. And sure, but the difference is that only sexual immorality establishes a one flesh relationship that undermines your own body's rightful ownership. Sexual sin is so self-destructive because it's tearing your body away from the body of Christ. Run for your life. Like Joseph fled from Potiphar's seductive wife, he did not linger. Friends, please notice the Bible does not talk about freedom here. It talks about a change of ownership. Redemption, verse 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. That's the imagery of a slave market. Your cleansing, your sanctification, your justification cost Jesus his death on the cross. So honour God with your body. When we want to resist or oppose sexual immorality, we talk about you know, how right it is to honour a marriage partner with faithfulness. We talk about, I've already said it, the psychological damage of porn and casual sex. And we talk about how abusive it is to treat others as sex objects and those things are true. But for me, the turning point in understanding this passage came in the observation here that Paul is most concerned with the question of ownership. This whole passage undermines the idea of autonomy. Because if you belong to another, well, you don't discover your own identity. If you belong to another, you don't have the right to do whatever you want. Now, I've got to say, in fact, that an ethic of total unqualified freedom is a recipe for disaster as our society is experiencing because everyone's freedoms will compete with all the others doing their own thing. If everyone's free, no one's free, all are threatened by what others do with their freedom. Friends, it's union with Christ that brings real freedom, real relationship with Jesus and so you are not your own but your master is a good master, the best. He clothes and feeds and looks after you because he loves you. And of course this way of love brings not only concern for his honour to the fore but then also a concern for the welfare of others. You're not your own. If you're a Christian, you're bought at a price. You belong to Christ. 
practical application here? Well, the two commands are very simple, aren't they? Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Verse 20, honour God with your body. don't know how many seconds and hours and days, years you'll have, but flee sexual immorality. It's not just something that only lasts a few minutes and doesn't really matter. Honour God with your body. Jesus' resurrection means your body has a future. And whether it's hours of sex or hours of work or study or eating or social media or TV, whatever takes the time in your life, honour God with your body.